How has that impacted you in, in a way that made you say this, this is something that I must absolutely continue to do? Uh, I think a common experience for a lot of teachers is that we like to be in the classroom. We like to be working with students. We like to see that our effort is helping somebody, but we often get tied up in uh, paperwork, bureaucracy. There are a lot of other parts of the job that can be challenging. We don't always have the freedom that we would like to have. Sometimes you might have a great idea for something to do in the classroom or outside the classroom. And then you get kind of caught up um, in administrative obstacles and either the moment passes and the project never bears fruit or else um, it's kind of restricted in such a way that the original vision can't quite come to be. You're listening to The Leader's Lab with Dr. Charity TV. Welcome to The Leader's Lab, the podcast created to help millennial multi-passionate entrepreneurs build, organize, launch, and manage their online brands and businesses without losing balance. And now, here's your host, the digital organization development consultant, cross-cultural communications specialist, and your favorite global leader, Dr. Charity C. Campbell. Hey, 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 Entre Leaders. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the 36th episode of the Leaders Lab podcast. Today, I have a very special segment for you. I am introducing to my viewers and to my audience a very dear special friend of mine, a colleague who has an international nonprofit organization that he's going to be sharing with us today. The Kesho Fund, I believe I'm saying it correctly. The Kesho Fund was founded in 2017 when Tanzanian teachers Olivia Kimothi and Petro Oka, I hope I'm saying them right, met American teacher John Whalen, who was in Tanzania on a teaching fellowship. Oliver and Petro were highly engaged in enrichment activities for uh, students in their city of Mwanza, but they had no source of funding. So they worked with John and some other friends in both Tanzania and the United States to found the Kesho Fund, which is an international NGO that raises support for projects in Mwanza related to gender equity, school infrastructure, and school supplies. Now, for those of you who are tuning in today, you are, um, and for those of you who you love to be a part of global initiatives or you have a little bit of interest, I definitely want you to lean in closer as John and I talk about his uh, international NGO. So without further ado, please help me welcome my dear friend and colleague, Mr. John Whalen. Hello, John. Good morning, Charity. It's nice to see you again. It's so nice to see you and I can't wait to see you in person. I cannot wait to see you in person. For those of you who are watching the video version of the podcast, John is currently in Shaman. If you remember my personal prison a couple of months ago, uh, John is actually in Shaman making his way to Dalian and he is having a much better experience there than I did. So John, thank you once again for agreeing to be on the Leaders Lab podcast. Another day in paradise here in the quarantine hotel. Happy to have something to do. And how many how many days do you have left there? Here I have zero. Dolly and I have 14 for quarantine part two. Okay, wow. So he's going to be here soon, which I'm so excited because then I'll I'll have other colleagues and friends to go to lunch with and dinner and talk about all the stuff that we talk about with university things. So Jayo, I'm so excited that you're coming here. So first of all, uh, tell me a little bit about Kesho. Tell me a little bit about the Kesho Fund. First of all, how did you, how did you all come up with the name Kesho? When Oliver and Petro and I were first talking, we wanted the name of the organization to be in Swahili, which is a Tanzanian language that's now used as a lingua franca throughout the country and throughout the region of East Africa. Um, and we came up with a few different thematic options. Uh, the first one we were set on was Umoja, which is a good thing. We did not go with that. I think people have enough trouble 
with Casio, which is a lot easier. Um, so we landed on Casio, it means tomorrow in Swahili, and we thought that it would be a nice symbol for us working for a brighter tomorrow uh, for the students. So our emblem is um, a little rising sun named the Kesho Fund, and it's short and um, memorable enough, you know, to, to be easy to work with for us. Nice. Okay. And and the other, what what does the other word mean? You said amumbo. See, Umoja. this is why you yeah. had to name it Kesho. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Umoja is like togetherness or oneness or something like that, which is also kind of on topic, but a lot harder for people to say and remember and makes it more difficult to have conversations around. You don't want people to feel awkward trying to say it, you know, if they're not familiar with Swahili or haven't heard it said before. Right. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so tell us, what is the, the mission of the Kesho Fund? What's the overall mission of it? The mission of the Kesho Fund is to facilitate community-led development projects in education within Tanzania. So we mostly don't start our own projects um, through the Kesho Fund as we see it now. We originally and still are looking for projects that are already led as sort of passion projects from local leaders. And then we try to help those boost their impact most commonly by um, targeted grants, bringing funds to projects that are operating on a negative budget, typically coming out of teachers' um, pay. Most of the projects are led by teachers. Um, and then we help out with organization in terms of connecting them to other groups within Tanzania or within the U.S., um, as the case may be, and helping them with other resources in addition to money, too. So what are some of the initiatives or maybe other partner uh, partnerships programs that you've worked with in Tanzania? Because you said you, you like to kind of work with um, projects that are already underway. So... Are there, have you done any uh, recently in the past that you know, maybe they were already there and Kesho was just like, hey, we're here to help. So what, what, what's that been like for you? Yeah, so we organize our projects within three main programs. The first is gender equity. The second is school infrastructure. And the third is school supplies. And uh, within gender equity, we have some girls empowerment clubs at three schools within Wanza, three um lower level high schools. High school is broken into two years upper level, two years lower level. And we just had a visit, I think two weeks ago from some of the girls who graduated from one of the first girls empowerment clubs before the Kesha Fund was founded um, when Oliver was leading them on her own. So I don't know, maybe 2015 or something like that. And those girls are now involved with a group called CAMFED, Campaign for Female Education. So they came back now as young professionals um, wow. to talk to the new girls empowerment club students who are between 12 and 15 years old, maybe to say, mm -hmm. here's who we are. Here's where we are in our lives. Now, here's how we made it happen. Uh, here's our contact information. If you want to talk more, um, they discussed, you know, the importance of goal setting and how they achieved in their personal lives, what they were trying to achieve and stuff like that. And for young students to have, not just positive role models from their community, but from their actual same club alumni returning to talk to them, I think was um, pretty impactful and, and pretty cool. I can imagine so, seeing someone who who used to be where you are, and now they have, you know, they've had the same opportunities that that are trying to be afforded to me. And now to see that this is this is where they've what they've become or, you know, what these resources and this project has helped them to become would motivate me to, to want to join or to at least be a part. So I, um, wow, that's pretty awesome. Now, uh, I do have one question that I probably should have asked a little while ago, but no where exactly is Mwanza? Now I know that Mwanza is in Tanzania, but um, for someone like me, yes, I've tried. I've traveled to different countries in Africa, but I, I haven't been to Tanzania yet, so I'm not necessarily familiar with the location of Mwanza. So, in relation to like other countries, where is Tanzania located, and then also like where is Mwanza situated in Tanzania? Yeah, so Tanzania is in East Africa on the coast. It's just south of Kenya and north of Mozambique, okay. and uh, within Tanzania. It's a fairly large country, I want to say comparable to Texas, hopefully 
hopefully that's accurate, on, um, okay. on the western side, northern half, um, uh, there's Lake Victoria and one is on Lake Victoria. So compared to other countries there too, um, around the lake, we also have uh, Kampala, Uganda and Kigali, Rwanda um, and DRC uh, farther on the west side. So okay. it's in an inter interesting international area. Um, Mwanza does not have an international airport though, so it's not as familiar to people in other countries as Dar es Salaam on the east or Moshi next to Kilimanjaro is. So it's the closest big city. It's on Lake Victoria and it's closest to Serengeti, but because the airport is small still, um, it doesn't get as many visitors or quite as much attention as some other places in Tanzania do. Okay. okay. And of course, now, as I was as I was introducing the Kesho Fund and and uh, mentioning how the Oliver and Petro how they met you, what were you doing in Tanzania in the first place? Like, what what made you say, "Hey, I want to go to Tanzania"? Like, was it just something you just woke up one day and thought, "Africa, Tanzania, that's my purpose. That's what I want to do." Like, how did you even go from? Because you're originally from New Hampshire, so how did you go from New Hampshire to Tanzania? Yeah, so kind of a long winding road, as I guess uh, all these all these life experiences are. But when I was um, in undergrad at the University of Richmond in Virginia, uh, they pushed students to study abroad. By pushed, I mean they made it very easy. They said, anyone who studies abroad anywhere, we guarantee it'll be cheaper for you to do that than to stay here. So mm. if there were financial obstacles they're removed and then they work with partner programs to sort of make it as easy as it can be. Um, that said, I studied abroad for a summer in China and then the following fall in Kenya. And both of those choices were places I was interested in, but to be honest, I'm interested in a lot of places and they are both a little serendipitous. I was looking at partner programs, partner schools, different locations, what it meant, um, to go to each place and the program in Kenya really interested me. It was through a school called the School for International Training. So um, the School for International Training, we did a semester's worth of schoolwork, but compressed in like two months or something like that, and then had a month of supported independent research within the country connected to local experts. And that was what really appealed to me. So I loved that experience very much later went to graduate school in Colorado to study teaching English as a second language. And when I was getting close to graduating, I applied to a fellowship program through the U.S. State Department's English language programs. And I was fortunate enough to get matched to a program in Tanzania. Their um, rationale was that I had spent some time in Kenya and studied Swahili some, which is uncommon in their applicant group. And so okay. I was offered Tanzania without having applied to it directly. I applied to kind of a worldwide program, but I was pretty thrilled when I was offered it because when I was in Kenya, I spent a lot of time right on the border with Tanzania. I heard a lot about it. I went on a short visit there one time and I was very curious. I was curious about the culture and um, the geography and the language. And so when the teaching fellowship said our first match is Tanzania. What do you think about that? I was pretty thrilled and um, jumped jumped at the opportunity. So I went there with the program. And the idea was that I'd be teaching at a university, teaching English courses uh, about half time, and then spending the other half of my time helping the university, uh, for instance, shift from a grammar-based teaching model to English for specific purposes. So I was teaching English for engineers and English for tourism and helping outline courses in English for business, um, English for media and journalism, stuff like that. And that is how I came to meet Oliver and Petro, sort of um, sideways, somewhat related to my job. I was uh, meeting other leaders around, seeing what people's projects were up to. And I started to figure out pretty quickly that uh, the most impact I could have as a person as a professional working there was not necessarily coming in with my own ideas and trying to start new projects, but instead finding local experts who 
had already founded projects in their community, had already found some degree of success, identified specific obstacles to continued growth, and um, were interested in talking together about how to address those. So Petro and Oliver both had several personal initiatives that they'd been leading for a while in their home areas where they had strong relationships, very good understanding of what students needed, whether or not students you know, were expressing that to them openly. And um, they had also participated in projects related to the US before. Um, Petro had visited the US once on a short program related to um, US Fulbright, and Oliver participated in a program called Teaching Excellence and Achievement, also through Fulbright, um, uh, okay. a little while later. And having spent time in both countries was very helpful in terms of our ability to communicate with one another, not language-wise, yeah. but, um, you know, culturally. I was, I was actually going to ask, uh, how was that... Um, being able to communicate across cultures like that. You know, we're, we're dealing with cross-cultural communication where you are, you are an American. And even though you had studied uh, some Swahili when, during your time in Kenya, uh, so you were able to maybe understand a little bit when you were in, in uh, when you were in Tanzania and then having Oliver and Petro uh, being able to understand English uh, probably at a greater level because English is also understood in Tanzania Correct. I mean, it's hmm. it's like I'm not going to say it's, it's it's definitely not the official language, but it's like one of the languages that uh, it's a universal language. So maybe it's studied in school. Right. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting situation that most students in Tanzania will speak a language spoken by either both of their parents or sometimes their parents have different first languages. Uh, Tanzania okay. has 120 local languages or something like that. Um, so students will have a first language. And then most students learn Swahili as their second language. Uh, students uh, living in big cities in particular might learn Swahili as a first language. For most, I think it's their second. Then they learn English as their third language, but English is used as a medium of instruction, at least in high school. Um, I'm not sure about primary school as well. So okay. it's their third language in most cases, but it's all their teachers are using. It's all that's used in class, and that's a pretty big challenge for them. Okay. Uh, for me, coming in um, as an American with different uh, cultural expectations, even if we're speaking the same language, some of the, or maybe the big, biggest challenge is that Tanzanians are extremely um, polite and kind and warm and uh, sort of oriented towards group harmony on a cultural level. And Americans are fairly direct and blunt. And so my experience was that in talking to people about things, uh, as, as a illustration, it's sometimes seen as rude in Tanzania to say no to a lot of different things, particularly if it's someone's idea, for example. So in the beginning, um, Petro and Olive and I were talking to different potential partners, um, trying to line things up for the Kesho Fund. And someone might say, oh, that seems like a really good idea We'll be in touch. Can't wait. And I'd leave and say, yeah, that went great. And Oliver and Petro would say, it's not happening. It's time to move on. And I'd say, what do you mean? And they'd say, uh, they just didn't want to say no. But for whatever reason, they're, they're not probably actually interested. And say, wow. Well, so to be direct and to just say, no, not at this time, or no, we're not interested, it's actually considered rude or disrespectful. It can be, yeah. You know, of course, it's tough to... Um, generalize too much or oversimplify, but that was an experience I had several times that I expected to hear yes or no, and I'd be okay either way. You know, we kind of expect that in the U.S. It's no problem if someone says not going to happen, not interested, or what have you. Um, and so sometimes reading the subtler cues, um, we'll be in touch, we'll think it over, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I couldn't pick up on that at first. Okay. But, but now, you know, now if someone says, okay, yeah, we'll be in touch. Now, you know, in your mind, like it's a no, it's a no. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm better at it than I was, but on, you know, in, in the same way, um, at Oliver and Petro are just going to be more effective 
in Tanzania forever than I will. And that's okay. You know, that's what I mostly had to learn. Do my best, learn as I go, mostly rely on experts. Okay. So in your experience now, how long were you in Tanzania with, with the, uh, with the program you were with, with the, uh, you said the U S state department, right? Yeah, there are uh, English language programs, it's called. It's a very generic, very okay. generic title. Um, so I was there for a little under two years. It was two one-year fellowships, only allowed to renew it one time, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would probably still be there. So yeah. I think it was mm-hmm. 10 months each time and then maybe a little extra for personal travel each time as well. So you really loved it there, huh? You really, you, cause you just said that if, if you were able to renew again, you would probably still be there. So you really loved it in Tanzania. Yeah, it was great. You know, for there are challenges anywhere, but for the most part, I was pretty happy there. I felt um, productive and I had strong friendships and liked my job. And um, yeah, I liked it a lot. And you were also making a difference in the lives of, of some of these, these, you know, the children and things like that. So before I ask you about some stories of uh, at least, you know, one or two students whose lives have been changed by the Kesho Fund, I want to ask you, um, how do you feel like your life was changed by being in Tanzania? I mean, because I've known you now since what, two th- the, the, the fall of 2019, I think you came to, to Dolly and to Doofy. The fall of 2019? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, that's okay. So um, so I've known you since then. And of course, I've known about the Kesha Fund and uh, it's Kesha, excuse me, Kesha Fund. <laughs> and um, so, but, but I don't think I ever asked you before how it has impacted you. I know you impact others, but being in Tanzania, and, and this is my first time hearing you say that you would have renewed you know, you if if you were able to, you would have still been there. Um, how has that experience and then uh, starting the Kesho Fund and and then you know working with these the children, um, even with your partners now, Petro and Oliver, like how has that impacted you in in a way that made you say this this is something that I must absolutely continue to do? Uh, I think a common experience for a lot of teachers is that we like to be in the classroom. We like to be working with students. We like to see that our effort is helping somebody, but we often get tied up in uh, paperwork, bureaucracy. There are a lot of other parts of the job that can be challenging. We don't always have the freedom that we would like to have. Sometimes you might have a great idea for something to do in the classroom or outside the classroom. Then you get kind of caught up um, in administrative obstacles and either the moment passes and the project never bears fruit or else um, it's kind of restricted in such a way that the original vision can't quite come to be. And so the nice part about working with teachers in after school clubs and projects, um, serving school breakfasts or building school bathrooms and things like that is these are all projects that the schools themselves are enthusiastic about, and we are bringing in outside resources to fund, which means we're not very dependent on any particular administrative group that can create obstacles of one kind or another. You know, we we talk to schools about what kind of textbooks they would like, what kind of building at the school they need next, and we talk to donors, and donors are typically enthused And it's great that um, whatever else is going on in my other projects and my job and immigration, quarantine, things like that, it's nice to know that something that I'm working on is still having a positive impact. I might not be in the clubs with the students. I would visit when I was in Tanzania, of course. I'll visit again at some point. Um, But it's nice to know that something is continuing to move forward, whether or not other parts, you know, other professional initiatives are satisfying, uh, you know, at the moment or not. Okay. All right. So uh, how, and, and I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm just going to ask this. I don't know if this maybe is, is uh, not the right type of question to ask, but like 
on a on a I, I guess on a on a normal project basis. Like what do what does the um normal operations look like? Is is that like is that a good way to ask that question? Like what what do the normal operations look like um for the Kesha fund? So for any individual project, it's a little bit um, different, of course. But for example, right now, we are gearing up for our next school bathroom construction. And I, I guess that's a good, that's a useful aside as well, that we decided we wanted to be involved with school infrastructure um, as our most um, large-scale, expansive projects. So, for example, we're serving school breakfasts for 22 cents a piece or something like that. It's porridge and fruit. And that's very, very cheap. And it means that every dollar we get, we can do more than four new breakfasts. And that's very easy to manage. But we wanted to be working on bigger, more challenging, more ambitious projects as well. And school infrastructure, of course, spending thousands of dollars at a time is... Um, more work, basically, and takes more money. So in the beginning, we were working with Petro School that was not electrified, and Tanzania being um, very, Mwanza being close to the equator, gets around 12 hours of darkness year-round, which means um, it's dark in the mornings when students and teachers come in, and it gets dark early in the evenings, which makes it hard to have some after-school programs. And so wow. teachers, I don't have my phone with me nearby to show, but Petra would send us photos of teachers getting there in the morning and use their cell phone lights to try to prepare lessons and things like that. Of course, they couldn't have printers. Um, Tanzania gets two rainy seasons a year, so those are pretty dark. And you have students in dim rooms, uh, you know, trying to read chalkboards that are dim. Mm -hmm. It was tough. So getting the electricity together, that made a lot of sense to us. Um, it was not that expensive, of course, because the town has electricity. We just have to wire school buildings and then get it connected to the town source. But then after that, when we started talking about um, getting electricity to more schools, building more classrooms, et cetera, uh, the idea came up, I would say from Oliver first, that many of the schools had far too few bathrooms. So we'd have students, 50 or 100 students, even sharing each individual toilet, which means wow. there would be um, you know, on the short breaks between classes, there'd just be an impossible number of students trying to use the facilities all at once, which means others end up missing class time, trying to go out into the neighborhood looking for other places they can use, which is not very safe for them. It's just the facilities are overburdened. And that was mm -hmm. not on my radar exactly. When we talked about projects in education, um, bathrooms didn't come first to mind, but talking to local teachers there about um, actual issues they perceive, even though students, that's not probably something the students bring up, or even, you know, if a student's in primary school, they've only been at one school before, it's probably not top of their mind. We need four times as many toilets as we have. Um, but so we started talking about how to make that happen, started talking about who we needed to involve. So we had to get a construction engineer to come out and survey the site. Uh, talk about the talk to the school admin, who of course was enthused, but then also in an urban school, there's not that much physical space on the campus. So figuring out where it could fit, how does that mean it's going to be um, situated related to other buildings? Where can the plumbing go if it's in a part of campus without plumbing around it? Um, then getting, uh, you know, the local workers, construction workers who can come and do it, figuring out who can. Um, price out the materials. We do that ourselves because we can get cheaper cheaper deals, of course, than going through a general contractor. So Pedro um, does most of that. Zipping all around town to 10 different stores on a motorcycle, um, scribbling down all the prices, and then ending up getting cinder blocks from one store, uh, cement from a different store, roofing materials wow. from a third store, et cetera, um, just to try to you know pinch pennies and make sure we're doing as much as we can for the support that we have. And then, um, you know, finding time, you don't want, I mean, most of the construction's done by hand, so it's not that noisy, but still doing it with students around can be more challenging. So after school or weekends or school breaks or what have you. So even 
coming up with a project sometimes is involved. As I said, we moved from electricity into bathrooms, um, then figuring out who do we need permission from, what kind of organization do we need, where do the materials come from, who does the work, what's the timeline. Uh, we, especially in the beginning, we did not have enough money to just build a bathroom all at once. They cost around $5,000 in the beginning. Materials have gone up a little during COVID, just like everywhere else. U.S. Um, dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, okay. Yeah, um, so doing that, we also had to figure out which stages of construction we could reach and then safely leave alone for a month or two waiting for more money to come in. So concrete foundations, not a big deal in the rain. Cinder block walls are okay, but et cetera. Figuring out when we could do it, not knowing when the next money is coming in basically. Um, when, so, I mean, this this is a whole, whole process here. Um, so when you say well, waiting on uh, more funds to come in, how do, how does Kesho Fund usually receive, uh, you know, the, the, the money to, to build the, to do any of these projects? Because I'm sure, you know, the bathrooms, that's just one type of project. There are several others, but how, you know, how, how do you get the funds to come in? I mean, do you have funding from um, partners outside of the United, um, outside of Tanzania or, or maybe I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that maybe people in the community would be contributing to this. So how do you, where does the funding come from? Yeah, I would say there are probably, we can look at it as four distinct sources. Uh, the one that we tend to emphasize the most is monthly subscription donors. So we use PayPal, especially for that. Uh, folks in the USA, we let them subscribe to specific projects if they want or uh, specific nice. programs really. So. Um, I think we get the most monthly subscribers to the gender equity program, and that lets donors know that all of the money they donate is going to sewing sanitary pads for students and funding Aww. the after-school girls empowerment clubs. Or they could fund um, school supplies, which buys books and breakfasts, or um, school infrastructure, which works on the bathrooms. So monthly subscri subscriptions um, are very important to us and they're great for us, particularly when it comes to the pads and the breakfasts because we want those funds to never go down month to month. We don't ever wanna serve you know, a certain number of students breakfast this month and then say, sorry, we didn't get enough next month. So mm -hmm. only half of you get breakfast. So it, monthly subscriptions are very important for planning for us in that way, especially for the ongoing month to month projects so that we can know how much we are definitely getting. If we get more, that's nice, and make sure that our projects are scaling slowly and sustainably. Um, second, we do raise some funds directly from the community in Tanzania. Um, depending on the projects, infrastructure is the easiest for teachers to go to parents when there's you know some sort of school assembly or what have you to say, we really need a new bathroom. Um, we are trying to get 10% of the total cost together or something like that, and then we'll look for international donors for the rest. Um, so third, we get one-time individual donations from the US as well, sometimes from events people organize. Could be uh, holiday-related events. We have an end-of-year giving drive often, or Giving Tuesday, something like that. And then mm -hmm. fourth, um, partnerships with businesses in the US. This is something that we haven't done as much of, but we're working on more. And so, for instance, we just had our biggest fundraiser uh, ever by far with a restaurant in the U.S. called Burger Bar, which is pretty awesome. I, wow. Yeah, I had a friend who I had worked with at a different restaurant in 2013, maybe quite a while ago. And um, I heard that she and her uh, partner are now running their own restaurant called Burger Bar in Portsmouth, the same town where I used to live. So I reached out to them and asked if they'd be interested in hosting a small event with us, say sharing profits from one day or something like that. And they immediately suggested sharing profits for an entire week and then paying out of their own pockets uh, the however much we also raised. So in effect, doubling it. And so that was a pretty big deal for us and showed that there are a lot of folks out there, you know, despite the fact that COVID has had 
a serious impact on a lot of U.S. businesses. There are still a lot of places who are looking to give back to their communities and very um, willing and excited to, you know, to become engaged. So speaking of COVID, speaking of COVID, which first, let me back up. I think that that was uh, amazing that you had, that your, you know, your, your friend who owns Burger Bar, you know, decided to to partner with Kesho Fun. I, I'm sure that that so was... Cool. And I think it was also probably perfect timing too, because you were displaced in the States for a period of time, like I was due to mm -hmm. COVID. And now, now that you're on, you know, you're on your way back to Dolly and finally, but you were able to get that uh, type of fundraising going before right. coming back. So I think that that was awesome. But my question is, um, has COVID, I mean, I can imagine you, you, just like you said, you know, COVID impacted a lot of businesses, many businesses had to shut down, they lost money and things like that. But how yeah. about for your international NGO? Has COVID had um, a negative impact on how the normal operations uh, continued or ha did anything had to stop as a result of COVID? How, you know, how was the community affected by COVID back in Tanzania? What happened? You know, we had a big pause for a while. Schools shut down, so uh, we tried to figure out if we could you know, replicate our breakfast programs at students' homes, for example, and it was very, very challenging. Students living all over the place, and us as an outside organization, we don't get told where students live or anything that would, you know, be more sensitive in terms of uh, personal information than the, the project we usually do. Um, the girls' clubs couldn't operate, and I think the most unfortunate part for us was that we're working directly with three girls' clubs now, but we are in touch with teachers at other schools who want to be involved and to start their own girls clubs, but they have really straightforward questions like, um, how do we get a, a teacher to lead it? If we have someone leading it, does that mean they have to develop lessons every single day, like a room, sorry, or <laughs> like a regular class, or are there outside resources that we're using? How much of what we do in the room every day is pre-planned and how much of it is discussion-based with the students? How do we get outsiders to come visit, um, you know, other leaders in the community, other organizations, et cetera, to come talk to the students about um, their futures, how they can achieve their goals, stuff like that. Um, do we let boys in the clubs? Do we want it to be talking about gender equity from a holistic perspective with boys and girls? Or do we need more of a safe space where girls can talk alone? And some really good questions that the leaders of the existing clubs can share their opinions on at great length and very helpfully. Uh, so we had a, an event planned for um, expanding to directly supporting 10 schools. And then we weren't allowed you know, to have folks gathering together because it was important to us to bring a few of the student leaders from each of those schools as well. So say two teachers and three or four students from each of the 10 schools, it's a big gathering. And in the middle of COVID, that wasn't really possible. Uh, vaccine availability is still low in Tanzania, so it's still a bit challenging. And so we're trying now to reschedule that we're hesitant to do it virtual only because that will cut out a number of the possible participants who can't easily be a part of a virtual meeting. Right. So we're still, we're, we're reconceptualizing that one now. It will happen. It'll take a little while and probably take a little bit more effort, but that's been our COVID experience mostly so far. Things slow down a little, um, but they are moving forward still. Um, when, when was the last time you were in Tanzania and, and do you plan to make any, I mean, COVID aside, do you plan yes. to make any, uh, return trips anytime soon to get like, how, how do you actually keep in touch with, with your team over there? Yeah, I'd like to return soon ish. It is very expensive to get to Tanzania from elsewhere. It's pretty, um, out of the way and takes, you know, since it's not an international airport from where I live in the U.S., it's four flights each way or something like that. Wow. With you know, often, yeah, often significant layovers. It takes a long time and and a fair amount of money. So I'd like to go back in the next couple of years, but for the most part, we rely on WhatsApp for ongoing um, text and media. 
And then we have at least one monthly discussion on a video chat with the board in the U.S. and the board in Tanzania to catch up on things, and sometimes more than that. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you still have your your uh, cross cultural operations underway, even in yes. despite COVID. Uh huh. Um, so what? Can, can you share one or two stories of students who have been positively impacted? First of all, uh, you've mentioned gender equity a few times and I wanna, I just wanna uh, ask about that. So what specifically is this, you know, your gender equity initiatives that you have with the Kesha Foundation? Also, um, uh, I, you said twice about providing pads like sanitary napkins. So. Tell, tell me tell me a little bit more about that. And then you can also add in the story of the students as well who've been impacted. But tell us about that, because that to me just sounds very, very interesting. You know, I think we kind of take for granted some of the things that we have readily available for us, especially mm-hmm. like, you know, in Western countries, things that we have readily available for us. I mean, we can just go to a store and buy sanitary napkins or sanitary pads, you know, for women or whatever. But but here you, you provide them. So do you buy them? Like what's, what's that like? Yeah, so we actually work with a local tailor or a couple of local tailors in Wanza to sew sanitary pads using, um, or I think based off of some materials that were provided by the Peace Corps at some point. So this was another idea. Sew? Like sew, yep. like hand sew? Uh, using a, a machine, yeah. Foot, foot pedal machines. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty great. So um, the, I guess the less great part, we can back up and and talk about the need for them. Um, Students in Tanzania, there are products available at the stores, but they're not really affordable, um, even for adults in a lot of cases, let alone for students. And so this means that it is considered normal at many schools for girls to miss classes when they're on their period and there won't necessarily be any allowances made for that in terms of making up the work uh making up the learning making up the absences if you know if there are allotted only a specific number of absences per term or something like that and so we can say that periods will directly relate to girls falling behind in their studies and in many cases uh failing out or dropping out um which is uh, a pretty enormous obstacle to overcome. And it's an obstacle that can be overcome with really a very, very small amount of outside help. So we work with tailors in Tanzania to sew sanitary pads out of local materials. And then each kit of, um, I think a kit contains like 10, uh, 10 actual pads and then like two sets of wings. These can be cleaned and reused, uh, basically just boiled um, for something like two years, I think, in depending on how, um, you know, how the, the fabric holds up. And so that means that for just a couple of dollars, um, a student can be, you know, assisted in staying in class throughout the month, throughout the year, uh, and continuing with their studies if that's what they want to do. Um, and you're right, that is... One of the projects when we tell people that um, we need more books in school, it's extremely obvious. They say, yeah, yeah, of course. But then when we tell people we need more sanitary pads in school, that is one that right away, uh, many folks in the U.S. say, I I get what you're saying, but that had never occurred to me as something, you know, as a basic human need, it hadn't occurred to me as something that wouldn't be available can we talk about you know how that how that came from? And like I said, I, I think that the basic instructions for uh, what we're doing and how we do it came through some Peace Corps materials, but okay. then we had to adapt them a little bit for our own situation. So, so we're talking about the the project with the the sanitary napkins or the sanitary pads, and so obviously when you say we need to provide books, you know, people are probably like, oh yeah, you know, just. That's fine. But when you say that there's a need for sanitary napkins or that, you know, this, I mean, so what's the response to that been? Um, Pretty strong, obviously positive across the board, but it is something that people have more of a visceral response to, I think, 
and they find it easier to connect to on a human level than, mm-hmm. you know, books and classrooms, chairs, electricity, stuff like that. That is all necessary, but it's maybe doesn't drive home the um, real human necessity of aid in a lot of these cases as the need for, you know, basic sanitary products does. Not only that, but I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that there's there's this tailor who makes these pads, these sanitary pads, and, really and you cool. said that they are. Huh? She's really cool. Her name is Adina. Adina. I mean, I'm just, and so in my mind, I'm like, how is this? And you said that they're reusable, like they're good to use up for two years. Hmm. So how? Yeah, I think we say like one to three years because just like any piece of fabric, you know, especially when you're washing it, if you're rough with it, they come apart a little bit. If you treat it carefully, they last a long time. But that's the gist. If they're boiled properly, they should stay sanitary. If the fabric is, you know, maintaining its integrity, it's not coming apart, it should stay sanitary. Um it works, you know, fairly well. You have to be careful with which fabrics are used. Of course, it took us a little while, some trial and error, um, to work it out because the instructions we had were not, you know, written for our exact place, our exact mm. city or or country or region or what have you. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, little little back and forth um, has has turned out really well. And you're saying oil. Like the the way to clean it is you mm-hmm. boil it. Yeah. You boil the sanitary pad. Basic. Well, uh, the way you sanitize it. Yeah. Can't can't have you know viruses or bacteria, same as any other um, medical medical product. And in this in this sanitary pad kit, you say it's a kit, and there's ten pads that come in there. Like what what all comes in the kit? Yeah, it's like ten. But I, I think the the trickier part is that the the wings are separate. When the wing the wings are like a holder or something for the pads. So I think two sets of wings, and then ten pads. Initially, the and that was one of the interesting pieces of feedback we had to get in the beginning that was important to us was the designs we were basing them off of was one set of wings and five set of pads. And then we were hearing that there just wasn't enough time after washing them for them to like dry out properly in the air. Basically, you know, people aren't using, uh, dryers, <laughs> clothing dryers. Yeah. And that took us a, so, that was one of those cases that it can be hard, especially if we have given something to somebody f- for free and they're grateful for it. It can be hard for them to feel comfortable giving negative feedback. You know what yeah. I mean? But yeah. so that was another one of those times that Oliver, I think, had to be sensitive and careful and and push and pull a little bit. And then eventually was like, I think we need to double the size of these things going forward at some point. And of course, if you know, if that's what's needed, it's a no brainer for us. So it was very good for us to get that feedback. Now, John, you know me and you know, I'm a visual person. I am trying to visualize these wings. All right, all, like you all right. said that they're- I'll help you. I'll help you. Go to um, <laughs> cashofund.org slash pads. You said that they're, pa- they're wing holders. These, mm-hmm. these are wing holders. Is that correct? Or the wings are the pad holders. They're pad holders. Yeah, listen, if you're like me and you're listening to this right now, or if you're watching the video version on YouTube and you're just like, huh? Like you really have to see it. You can see um, there, you can go and take a look on www. I'm actually going to, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously going to look it up right now because yeah, I'm, check it it's going to bug me if <laughs> it's going to bug me. So you can go to www. What is it, John? You can tell the people while I search for Cashofund.org it. slash pads. <laughs> yeah. Just on, just on my little, uh, just on your, just on your phone. Get that centered. So that's yeah, what the kit looks bit. like. Um, well, that's the original kit actually. So the the real kit now is double this. As I said, we had to increase the number, and then when it's assembled, so here okay. is what the um, the old pad kit was like: five pads, one set of wings, 
um, a washcloth and a bag. This is what it looks like when uh, they're assembled. Not everyone gets such exciting fabric patterns, unfortunately. You get what you get. When you've got a bunch of them, you're wow. stacked up and ready to be um, you know, put in bags and sent off. And the bags. Wow, John. And then uh, one of the days we were giving them out at the clubs. Wow. So they use a lottery system for these. Some of the clubs get a lot of students coming each session, uh, more than we can handle giving, um, giving pads to all at the same time. Mm. I can look up how many pads we're making monthly now. Give me one second. Sure. And on average, how much does it cost to make a kit? You know, the strange thing there is that as um, the construction supplies have become more expensive, but the pad supplies have become less and less expensive for some reason. So it looks to me like the last batch we funded, we only paid about $4 per kit, whereas previously wow. they were, yeah, seven and down to six, and now we're only paying four. So I don't really have any way of knowing if the materials are going to stay that cheap, but for whatever reason, the fabric has been inexpensive lately, which is pretty awesome for us. So, so far we've made 1,272 kits. Each, each kit goes to a different student. Um, average cost, I guess, over time has probably been about $5 each. And lately we've been making one, between 100 and 200 a month, depending on funding. Wow. And, and the clubs that you distribute these, uh, these kits to, um, on average, how many, how many girls are there in those clubs? Yeah, it really varies um, quite a bit, but I would say between, big range maybe, between big range. Okay. 50 and 150, You look like you were like about that. to say between, mm, yeah, actually, like I don't. Between 50 and 150, but that's such a, um, it's so different that, um, you know, it's hard to be real specific. I can show you a couple pictures here too, though, at keshofund.org slash clubs. Okay. Where we've got. And also each of these websites have a little video of Oliver walking us through the projects. So if you're curious for more detail from her, um, you can check it out that way. And also if you'd ever like to talk to her, you know, on here, her and or Petro, um, they are super interesting and more, more knowledgeable than I am. Okay. Now, now do they, are they the ones who they oversee it or, or your their co-founders? Like, how does that yeah. work? Yeah, both are true. So um, right now we are calling Petro our Mwanza Projects Coordinator and Oliver our Mwanza Outreach Coordinator. I think we are moving toward a slight restructuring that instead of me being the director, I'll be the USA director and we'll have a Tanzania director as well, which okay. is nice for us. So over time, the way that um, in the beginning we were doing most of the accounting and planning and stuff on the US side. And over time, we've managed to figure out how to structure a little bit more, um, what's that called when something's the same on both sides, like in a mirror? I, I don't know, you mean balance? I, I don't know, like I, you're asking, you said when something's on, on both sides, when something's the same? Yeah. We're structuring it a little bit more symmetrically now. Now, John, first of all, why are you bringing in <laughs> geometry? Why? No, no, I got stuck there. But why would anyway. you do that to me? Yeah, now <laughs> you that know how more, I feel. <laughs> now that we're more used to things, um, in Tanzania, we've got uh, four people leading projects, and then we've got a lawyer as well helping with, um, you know, the inevitable ongoing. Um, issues with reporting to the government and mm. uh, continuing to make sure that we are operating in a way that's transparent enough for them, et cetera. And then in the US, we've got um, four people who work together as well. So nine of us total, five in Tanzania, four in the US. Hopefully we'll continue to grow over time, especially because as our projects grow, the time demands on each project leader in Tanzania tend to go up as well. 
So I mentioned earlier that we used to have to wait several months at a time for each stage of constructing a building. Uh, we break the construction into five or six stages. And now we are often able to fund more than one stage per month, which is great. Wow. And we are looking at, after we finish the construction of the bathroom that we're building now, we're looking at doubling the size of the building for the next school, which will be uh, very exciting for us and also a challenge because it will mean working with more workers, working with more materials, taking more time and more funds. And so having all of this work in a way, of course, it's very exciting for the project leaders when it grows and they might be hesitant to say, I'm getting kind of overburdened on my evenings, <laughs> evenings and weekends here. Um, yeah. So finding more volunteers to keep helping us grow in a way that is sustainable is important to us. So you you just shared with us some of the some of the goals that uh, that the Kesho Fund has for this year, and also obvi the obvious importance of these goals. But my question is, what would happen if the Kesho Fund wouldn't be able or wasn't able to accomplish these goals in time? We try to set all of our goals optimistically, but with that exact question in mind, uh, we don't ever want to start construction on a project that we don't have a clear course to completion for. It doesn't mean we have to have every dollar in the bank uh, at the outset because then we'd end up having students wait who could be helped you know, sooner rather than later. But it does mean that we have to have the knowledge that it's going to happen quickly or slowly, both are okay. So if we build half of a bathroom, as I mentioned earlier, we never start at least a stage of construction that isn't going to be okay to either be left exposed before the roof goes on or to be left um, in, a, you know, uh, in a state of semi-completion. So we have to do the whole foundation at once, have to do all the walls at once, have to put the roof on, um, can't start painting until we're ready to do all of it, something like that. But as long as we break it down into chunks like that, and we know that we'll get to the end of the project sooner or later, then there's no harm in taking more time if needed, which, as I mentioned, happened to us quite a bit during COVID. We ended up with a lot of pads um, that we weren't able to distribute, ended up with a bathroom that was half completed for a while. But as I said, it was just a foundation and cinder blocks, so it was okay. Um, ended up with the girls club expansion delayed. It's been a year now and we're still working on getting that back together. It's still yeah. Yeah. Um, difficult to have big groups of people together in Tanzania um, due to COVID restrictions and lack of vaccine availability. But quickly or slowly we're moving forward and you know that's what's important to us. As long as we never overextend and say, put half of a roof on a building that's going to then get blown apart in the wind or something like that, you know? Yeah. So obviously monetary don donations are ideal. However, in the event that a, uh, a donor, a prospective donor, you know, potential donor would like to contribute in another way, how can donors help other than making financial con contributions to the Kesho Fund? I think the most useful way though it's sometimes a little uncomfortable for people, is to talk to local businesses and see how they would feel about helping out. So businesses that are doing well, well, I said local businesses, but in reality, places people work as well. Big companies often have corporate giving programs, and these typically involve a little bit of perseverance and paperwork, but we've had success with that a couple of times where folks who want to donate work at a big company, and either they say, I'd like to donate $50 and I'd like you, my company, to match that donation. And they have to fill out some forms and wait months in some cases. But then sure enough, a check appears out of nowhere from a big company. And that's great. Or in other cases, companies will just write grants. A lot of big companies have a certain amount of charitable giving they do every year. And so a common experience is for someone to write a request to their big company and hear We've already made our commitments for this year, try back in nine months or something like that. That's a long time to wait, 
And then when the time does come, there's some paperwork, there's some getting bounced back and forth by email, actually talk to this person, actually talk to that person. And then it's a little bit annoying, but um, you know, if you navigate that gauntlet, then sure enough, there's a lot of times free money from big companies like that. And with local businesses, as I said, working with the restaurant Burger Bar, we had a huge success with them. We also had um, a very fun and very interesting event in Colorado where we had um, some games in the park. We played the game Bags or Cornhole. We organized a little tournament. Teams paid to enter. And when we talked to local businesses and said, we'd like to talk to you about donating uh, you know, a little money for a prize or some food or some beverages or something like that, most of the businesses we talked to were very willing basically immediately to say, yeah, no problem. Who do I write the certificate out to? Uh, who do I write the check to? Where do I donate the goods, et cetera? So despite the strain that COVID has placed on a lot of businesses, there are still a lot of places who are very willing to make donations uh, of one kind or another. So talking to local businesses about profit sharing or donation, uh, donating or matching grants um, is all incredibly helpful to us. And for most individuals, it's a more sustainable way to support the organization than donating out of their own pocket is. Okay, excellent. So my final question, and first of all, this has been this has been uh, very informative to say the least. But I and I appreciate once again having you on the Leaders Lab podcast. Um, if donors um, or maybe even volunteers were interested in connecting with you, how can donors and volunteers or someone who's interested in um, supporting special fund, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah. So first, all of our contact information is on that website that you've got posted there, cashofund.org. So okay. no one has to write anything down now. But yeah. then also uh, we we use Facebook at Kesho Fund, uh, Instagram at Kesho Fund. And then also our regular email address that we use is donations at keshofund.org. So any of those ways is fine. We also have a monthly newsletter that can be signed up for at the website there if people want to hear more from us. And if they want to talk more to us, then messages on Instagram or Facebook or emails are all, uh, all, all great for us. Excellent. All right. Well, do you have any, any closing remarks or comments that you would like to say to our viewers or listeners today? on this uh, wonderful, wonderful episode of the Leaders Lab podcast. Um, uh, once again, this is John Whalen with the Kesho Fund, which is an international NGO operating out of Tanzania and the United States. Um, and so what, what if anything, uh, would you like to leave with our listeners and viewers for today? Well, thanks for your interest. I'm, I'm very glad that we had this time to talk together. First, because it's nice to catch up with you. Second, because it's fun to, to talk about these projects, especially with more people who maybe haven't talked about um, international development work so much, or if they have, might be curious about Tanzania or about our projects in particular. And speaking of which, I think that we covered a lot of ground and might have touched on some topics not in as much depth as any individual listening might be personally curious about. So if anyone heard something that they'd like to learn more about, they're very welcome to contact us by email or on Facebook or Instagram. We're always happy to connect with folks who are interested in supporting the organization or just in learning more about what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. So reach out if you have any questions or comments. Love to hear from you. And thanks for having me uh, on Leaders Lab to talk. It's my absolute pleasure. So there you have it, Entre Leaders. This once again is John Whalen with the Kesho Fund uh, operating, operating out of Tanzania and the United States. And there's so many ways that you can get involved. Um, so many, you know, maybe you also have an idea um, or you have an interest in starting or working with, partnering with an international NGO. And one of the things that one of my biggest takeaways from um, everything that John has shared with us um, is when he started with with the Kesha Fund, he didn't go in trying to bring his expertise or trying to start something new. He actually just partnered with other initiatives that were already in play. And um, for me, I think that that's, uh, that speaks a lot to your leadership capability is the fact that you don't have to go in to just start something new. It's why don't you just help 
someone else with what they're already doing. And so um, for those of you who may have a desire to start your own program or things or, you know, something along the lines of that, here's a great opportunity for you to first get your hands and feet a little bit wet to figure out how things are, uh, how things are operated, managed, you know, how to even um, deal with cross-cultural teams. You can actually partner with the Kesha Fund. You can work with, with John, Petra, and Oliver and, and at least get some experience to see how things are done first before you decide to launch out on your own. So that is my uh, one of my biggest takeaways because sometimes we feel like we have to reinvent the wheel. Like we feel like we need to go and start an initiative, but it's like, but what about the people who already have something going on? Go and help them first. And you never know what opportunities or doors that may open. So again, Mr. Whalen, thank you so much for being on the Leaders Lab podcast. Personally, I can't wait to see you in person in a couple of weeks. That's going to be so exciting for us. Thank you, Charity. It's been fun. You're great. All right. My pleasure. Listen, don't forget, you can you can connect with uh, John and, and the Kesho Fund at Kesho Fund. Okay. Uh, it's Kesha, excuse me, at Kesha Fund. Kesha. Uh, <laughs> I had to make sure that I pronounced it correct. It's not Keisha. It's not Kiasha. It's not Kesho. It's Kesha Fund. Okay. On Instagram, also on Facebook. And then of course you have the website right there, www.keshafund.org. Don't forget that you can also connect with me on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Of course, if you're watching on YouTube, thank you so much for the Dr. Charity TV channel subscribers. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all of the above, then I want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this 36th episode. Listen, we look forward to having uh, John or his his we say compadres, his colleagues, uh, Petro or, and, and Oliver, if possible, we look forward to getting them to be on the show as well to see some other initiatives that we can be able to help and support. So thank you all once again for tuning in to this week's episode and I'll see you guys next week in the lab. Thank you for listening to the Leaders Lab podcast. visit our website at www.drcharitytv.com and follow us on all social media platforms with at Dr. Charity TV.